Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, the TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies and the host of the Grizz Weekly Grind. Good show lined up for you today. We've got a very special 901 Knowledge, an extended conversation, at least part one of the extended conversation I had with sports columnist Jeff Calkins of the Daily Memphian, and before that, the commercial appeal. We'll talk about his origin story, going from Buffalo to Harvard to law school, and then uh, to the sports page and how all that worked out. He'll also talk about the days when the Grizzlies finally relocated here from Vancouver as the Grizzlies celebrating 20 years in Memphis. Also coming up, Petey's points and a look ahead to what's up next for the Memphis Grizzlies. But first, this from our friends at Garner Framing Company here in Memphis. If there was one thing you could do, one bold action you could take, one inspired choice you could make, one investment guaranteed to transform Memphis, would you do it? If that answer is yes, then here's your chance. The Grizzlies Foundation is looking for Memphians to be the difference in a child's life by becoming a volunteer mentor. There are over 800 youth in Memphis waiting for your decision today. So don't delay. Join the movement and become a mentor at grizzliesfoundation.org. This message brought to you through the generous support of Garner Framing Company, serving Memphis for 70 years and a proud supporter of the Memphis Grizzlies Foundation. They're doing framing consultations by appointment. Call 901-685-7796. Chris Garner, great guy, excellent at his craft, and uh, we really appreciate the fact that Chris stepping up here and supporting the Grizzlies Foundation and the mentorship program. January is National Mentoring Month, and in a future edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind, we'll get Mike Wallace, who is very closely tied to and involved in the Grizzlies mentorship program. So uh, you can look forward to that. That was the week that was. Let's recap what happened with the Grizzlies uh, since we last visited. Basically, one game. It was the MLK Day game. Historically, the Grizzlies have not fared all that well in the MLK Day game, but uh, taking on the Phoenix Suns for the third time in the now 19-year history of the game, Grizzlies winning it 108-104, to overcoming a double-digit deficit for just the second time this season. Grizzlies did not have Jonas Valanciunas in this game. Health and safety protocols. He is going to miss at least the first game of the Portland series that is coming up and uh, not sure when he will be available to the Grizzlies again. But the Grizzlies getting solid efforts really up and down the lineup, uh, particularly from the bench. Grayson Allen, another strong game from him, hitting clutch free throws down the stretch, 16 points, seven of them coming in the final minute plus as the Grizzlies were able to get to the free throw line not a huge amount of times. They were 15 of 20, but they limited the Suns to just 16 free throws attempted, and the Suns made just nine for 56% free throw shooting. So the Grizzlies uh, caught a bit of a break there. Grizzlies defense was exceptional as well. 13 steals for the Grizzlies, forcing 18 turnovers from Phoenix, which is one of the more ball-secure teams in the NBA. They forced Chris Paul into six turnovers, Devin Booker into three, and the defensive job that the Grizzlies did on Devin Booker was fantastic. They limited him to just 12 points on 5 of 21 shooting. Booker didn't go to the free throw line. Chris Paul did not go to the free throw line. So some really remarkable numbers for this Grizzlies defense, which has seen its numbers go up in terms of defensive rating, in terms of deflections. They are the number one steal team in the league right now at 10.4 a game, which if the Grizzlies were to end the season with that total, it would be the best steal per game average for a Grizzlies team in franchise history. 
So the defense is doing a lot of really, really good things. Grizzlies win at 108-104 as they head west now to take on the Portland Trailblazers for a couple of games before returning home to take on Sacramento in a couple of games. And in fact, over the next seven games for the Grizzlies, they'll only see four opponents. San Antonio twice, Portland twice, Sacramento twice, and Chicago once. So that was the week that was. Time now to segue to Petey's Points. Well, one of the things that I just mentioned was how good the Grizzlies' defense has been, leading the NBA in steals per game. They also lead in steals off the bench. They're getting 10 steals basically from the starters, uh, or 10 steals overall, five from the starters, and five from the bench. And the Grizzlies have a seven-game streak of double-digit steals. So the deflection numbers have come up. The steals have come up. Defensive efficiency has come up. And the Grizzlies have to be extremely happy about that. Um, When you look at defensive efficiency at the moment, Grizzlies have the fourth-best defense in terms of points per 100 possessions allowed. They're at 106.1, which, as we record this, is the fourth-best in the NBA. Uh, If you want to know some of the other things that are going on, the difference that John Morant makes, okay, we know that John Morant makes a difference. There is a dynamism. There is an energy. There is just something about how he plays that seems to elevate everybody else's plays. What you need to know, at least numerically, the offensive production gets so much better. With him on the floor, and albeit it's a small sample size because he missed eight games, but... With Ja playing for the Grizzlies, they're averaging at 112 points per game, and they have never been fewer than 106 points in any game in which he's played. Now, in the eight games that they played without him, they averaged only 103 points per game, so nine points fewer per game when Morant was on the injured list. And the Grizzlies have been held to fewer than 100 points three times, and all of them came with Ja Morant, in a sweatsuit. I mean, that's the importance that he has on this basketball team. He continues to be one of the best scorers in the paint, particularly at his size. Uh, And, you know, the assist numbers are there for him as well. And, you know, a double-double of 17 and 10 assists while going up against Chris Paul on Monday against Phoenix. Awfully, awfully impressive from John Morant. And he said after the Philadelphia game that, you know, the bounce totally isn't back. But uh, I would imagine that he's going to get into a pretty good rhythm. Has had some slow starts, big second quarters rather than first quarters, but uh, it it doesn't matter. At at the end of the day, you know that all Ja cares about uh, are W's, and the Grizzlies have been getting them. They have now won five in a row. What else we got going on in Petey's points? Uh, Well, you know, there probably isn't a better quote this year or term this year that has come out of the first 13 games then Grayson Allen saying, hey, look, we just got a bunch of hoopers. Um, that's the trend in the NBA where you can have similar size guys who can switch, who can defend multiple positions. Uh, there are some coaches. I know James Borrego in, in Charlotte is very much ad, an advocate of positionless basketball. Um, Taylor Jenkins hasn't talked about it all that much, but that does seem to be kind of where he's going. In fact, both Borrego and Taylor Jenkins coming from the Greg Popovich coaching tree down in San Antonio. So 
you're you're looking at guys that enjoy playing together. You are looking at different combinations that have been successful together. There were times in the Phoenix game, particularly in crunch time, Dylan Brooks was not shooting the basketball very well. So you had Ja and Tyus on the floor with Grayson Allen. So it was a small team, but it was a productive team. And they were able to come up with the big plays in the clutch, and they were able to win the basketball game. When you watch this team, and when you see the joy with which they play, and you see the cohesion with which they play, you understand that this could be a very, very good basketball team. And it is a good basketball team right now, and will be even better when Jaron Jackson Jr. returns. And Hopefully when Justice Winslow returns or comes into the lineup for the first time because he's never played for the Grizzlies, you know, if he can integrate himself, there's some real potential here. And the baseline has been set for when Jaron comes back and Justice is in the lineup that, look, this is how we play. And we play with the spirit and we play with this togetherness. We play with this cohesion. And Taylor Jenkins certainly has everybody playing the right way and pulling all the oars in the same direction at the same time. And they seem to be in a pretty good sync as they head out to Portland to take on the trailblazers for a couple of games on Wednesday and Friday. Finally, I just want to touch on the MLK day celebration. It is always one of the red letter days of the Memphis area calendar. It is sad that because of COVID-19 not able to have a full building not able to have our honorees from uh, the National Civil Rights Museum Sports Legacy Award be in town, Neka Ogumike, Ray Allen, and Kenny the Jet Smith. Uh, we had to do everything via Skype, which is good, but it, it just does not have the same energy, frankly, as having them on stage and having the symposium conversation in front of a practice facility that is packed with people. Um, But still, it is a very worthy celebration, and the NBA and its players continuing to push for social justice and to enhance the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And again, it was a great celebration in Memphis. Unfortunately, a different type of celebration than it would be in Memphis, Tennessee. So that does it for today's edition of PD's Points. And with that, we segue now to some 901 knowledge. Jeff Calkins is an award-winning sports columnist. He started his tenure in Memphis with the Commercial Appeal and has since transitioned to the Daily Memphian. Also has a daily talk show on the local ESPN radio affiliate here in Memphis. Very intriguing story, and uh, I'm not going to tell you any more about it other than to say, here's Jeff Calkins with some 901 knowledge. So, Jeff... Tell us a little bit, because I'm always fascinated about origin stories from Buffalo to Harvard to law school. How did that all work? It's funny because when I hear so many origin stories, it feels like it all seems predestined. Um, and, oh, I see how it worked out because you then see how it worked out. And I'm sure that's true of your story. And um, But as you're going through it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel you have no idea how it's going to work out. And um, for me, I grew up, I was one of nine kids and a highly pre-professional family. Both of my parents are physicians and um, I was the eighth of nine and um, a lot of lawyers and doctors in the family. And if you'd asked me at 12 what I wanted to be, I would have said I wanted to be Larry Felser, who was the columnist at the Buffalo News. 
who had his little picture in the paper. And, and that's the guy, you know, would write about Bob McAdoo and Ernie D. Gregorio and Gilbert Perot and OJ Simpson. And, um, but at some point it doesn't feel respectable. It feels like wanting to grow up to be a cowboy or an Indian, you know, like it doesn't some, something you really do. And there's, there wasn't a clear path. Like I didn't really know how, and there is a very clear path to becoming a lawyer. So I just got good grades and I went to Harvard. And then if you get good grades, then you, you, you're told that you can do anything with a law degree. Well, you can do anything in spite of having a law degree. Um, <laughs> Gary Thorne, who you may know, do you know Gary Thorne? I mean, he's in your I, line. I know, I know of Gary, but I, so I, Gary's, a, yeah. Gary's a, a lawyer. And I know this because when I covered the Florida Marlins at one point in my life, I, Gary was doing a lot of baseball and, and he said he would get, he's a lawyer and he'd say he'd get so many letters from people who were unhappy lawyers who said, I want to do what you do. How do I do that? And um, and he said, he, I think he said he used to have just a file letter that he would respond because the truth of the matter is, I think there are very happy lawyers out there, but I think there are a lot who go in thinking that it's um, like the TV shows or, and, or who just like literature and history and, and, and there's not, you know, and, and so that sort of leads you to law and then you end up with a, as being a lawyer and it, it's very exacting drudgery at some level. I mean, it is, law is painstaking. And I just was an intensely, I mean, I, I was a very successful law student. I clerked for James Buckley, who was uh, William F. Buckley's brother on the DC circuit. And I was, you know, I, at one point I went jogging with Justice Scalia, because one of my good friends was one of his Supreme Court clerks. And I, it was sort of a lofty path I was on. But only in the abstract, I was truly miserable, miserable mm -hmm. in a way where you don't even know how you got there. It's sort of like the, the proverbial lobster where he ends up, you know, you, the, the water is gradually warmed up. And <laughs> yeah, and I just didn't, I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to be the partner at the end of the hall. And so, but I didn't know for sure that I wanted to be a sports writer. I didn't know that I could be a sports writer. I didn't, you know, people always say, follow your bliss. I just knew I had to stop being a lawyer. And so, and I'd, I, when I was 12, I liked the idea of being a sports writer. And so I went back, I took a leave of absence, went to journalism school, and then I applied for 300 jobs after journalism school. And here I was 31. I, you know, I'd been on Harvard Law Review. I'd, uh, I'd gone to Columbia Journalism School. I, and the only job I got, and this was back when newspapers actually had money and were employing people, um, was a job covering high school sports for the Anniston, Alabama star making $225 a week. As it happens, the guy who hired me, Joe Distelheim, died just this week. Um, he's a former editor in Detroit who'd hired Mitch Album and Mike Downey and a whole bunch of wonderful journalists. And, and I think we can all look at people who gave us a break. Well, he was the first who gave me a break. And then so then once I did it, even then I wasn't sure I was gonna love it or that it would be sustainable. At $225 a week, that's not a life that I could have. And so you sort of you realize you sort of evaluate every step along the way. Is this gonna work? And only once I got to Memphis and became the columnist here and was making a reasonable living and was writing fun story and was engaged with the community, did I realize, you know what, I think this is gonna work. And that was 25 years ago, and it's been a blast. 
you know, I remember in the mid 1980s going to Notre Dame and the job market was so bad that a lot of people in the liberal arts or in American studies, right. which was my major, well, I was going to go to law school because I don't know what else to do because there are no exactly jobs to be had. It. People go to law school. And, and it, it, if you want to go to medical school, you have to have taken organic chemistry. So that'll weed you out. Whereas anyone can go to law school. Like there's literally no prerequisites. You just have to be willing to shell out the money and to take the LSAT. And so people like us, exactly. that's exactly right. If you like history and whatever, what, what else are you going to do? I was a history major. Well, there's not a lot. The truth of the matter is one of my grad students who taught me at a, a, a section at undergrad in at Harvard um, and what wrote one of my letters of recommendation for law school later replied to law school himself because he couldn't get a job teaching history like and so there's a lot of people who stumble into to the legal profession and it's not all that it's cracked up to be and people will often say well did it teach you how to think like a lawyer no it taught me I did not want to be a lawyer that's what it taught me <laughs> And, um, and, but that's also useful, by the way, if, if, and I tell people this all the time when I talk to students, if you take a summer job that in a field that you hate, that's productive because now, you know, that's not so like right now, one of my sons is in investment banking in New York. And I honestly don't think he's going to, but he's learning. I think that he doesn't want to work hundred hours a week as an investment banker. That's not a law school. Three years is, is a little bit of a hard way to learn that, but it's not a, a waste of time to try something and say, you know what, this isn't for me because I crossed it off. I never have visions that I want to be a lawyer. And it was in that way, it was useful. We're visiting with Jeff Calkins, longtime sports columnist in Memphis, currently for the Daily Memphian, talking about his legal career now into a journalism career. And, it, and it's funny, we talk about the law because, and, and, and then looking at the sports columnists in Buffalo and saying, well, maybe sports writing isn't really that great a profession or, or, or what have you. I remember my parents, they, cause I wanted to be a sportscaster since I was a little kid. Right. Okay. And for them, it's like, well, no, you become a priest or a lawyer. That was, those were, <laughs> right. those right. were, those were the two prime options right. as far as my parents were concerned. Um, and I, I really, to this day, believe my parents, God rest both their souls, uh, never really understood what I wanted to do, even though my father loves sports, lifelong Green Bay Packer fan, et cetera. But I don't know that they ever fully understood it. And, you know, although it, it were they thankfully old, it's worked did out. They, did they last long enough that they saw you reach the, the you know, really make a wildly successful career out of it and make a contribution and be good as it as you are? Uh, my father died in 94. So I had been doing some games uh, on a fill-in basis for the Detroit Pistons. So he was aware of that. Uh, my mother passed oh, in February of, of 2020. So, yes, yes. And I always told her she wanted when is the free preview of league pass? Cause I've got to, I've got to watch it. <laughs> I want you, I want you to have more screen time. So, you know, we, so, so we had that, um, long history for you in Memphis and the Grizzlies are celebrating 20 years in Memphis. And there was a time when, People had NBA Now signs on their lawn, and then there were people saying the last thing we want is a pro sports franchise in Memphis. For those who are not initiated into that or who were not here at that time, what was what was the landscape at the time when there was a possibility the Grizzlies could relocate from Vancouver to Memphis? Well, it's funny because a lot of times when teams relocate, it feels like the culmination of a 
effort, right? And ah, we're going to finally get a team and, and there's great rejoicing. That's what you would have expected. Well, the city of Memphis, and I wasn't here for this part, had pursued an NFL team for forever. And it had, had filled up the Liberty Bowl for exhibition games time and again. It had wildly successful teams in other leagues and um, USFL and WFL and whatever else. And we're always, Memphis was aspiring to be an NFL town. And finally, um, you know, it was very clear that was not going to happen in part because the, the then Oilers, now Titans moved to Nashville and that sort of closed the door. You're not going to get another NFL team just down the road. And so Memphis was bitter. Um, Memphis felt lousy about itself. But Memphis had never really ever considered having an NBA team. It just wasn't because it felt we already had the Memphis Tiger basketball team, which is sort of a quasi NBA team. And so it was never the goal. And then when it finally arrived and you heard, Hey, Vancouver might move here. And actually, as it happens on the same day, it ended up that two teams applied to move to Memphis. Um, People were sort of bewildered. And by then they wondered if it would stick. And then the big, the other portion of it was Memphis had just built the pyramid, which was an arena down on the, on the river uh, 10 years before, which was already seen as sort of an overpriced, poorly done boondoggle. And the idea that you would have to spend 250 million more dollars, public dollars to, to attract a team. It wasn't that Memphians didn't want the NBA. They wanted no part of paying most, I think, wanted no part of paying for another arena but part of it was just born of the sense that nothing good can come of it anyway. There was a fatalism about it, that they would leave within five years or the new arena would be a boondoggle, or there was just an assumption that it would go badly awry in a way that I've never seen. You know, can you imagine if, uh, you know, pick your, your expansion franchise somewhere, if, if the reaction to it had been, yeah, we don't want it because it's going to fail. Like that's, that's literally what the thought was. And so, um, uh, and, and, but there were political leaders and philanthropic leaders who, let's be honest, kind of jammed it through. If this had been put to a referendum, the FedEx form would not have been built. But um, Willie Harrington was the mayor and Pitt Hyde and Staley Cates were the sort of local, spearheading the local effort. And, um, and they came and, and even then it was fits and starts. I remember Jerry West sort of telling me he'd look up at a sort of half empty arena and say he never thought it was going to work here, even though he was on board at that point. Um, because it's not L.A., you know, it's never going to be L.A., but it really has over the 20 years. And it, maybe this can we can overdo what it has meant, but I really think it has helped reshape how Memphians think about themselves. And that sort of hangdog, everything's gonna be a flop anyway, approach to life, you just don't see it anymore. It, it more Now, now there, there's a soccer team and they name it 901. You know, I mean, there's people, the, the Memphis brand is um, everywhere now because people are proud of the place. And I think the Grizzlies have had a large part to do with that. What was the turning point, you think? Obviously, moving out of the pyramid, which I remember visiting the pyramid when I was calling Portland Trailblazer games, and I'm like, okay, this 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 doesn't work as an arena. Right. Uh, but what what was what was the turning point? Because you know the 
the had the 50 win season the last the last year in the pyramid and and Hubie Brown and so you had Hubie Brown Jerry West you had some cachet but when did it really turn around or turn to a point where there was a love affair a full blown love affair between the city and the basketball team yeah it was i mean that was a that was a great moment and a great year Hubie Brown was a great story a delight to cover um and um and that team was attractive with Powell and Shane and Jason Williams, but it was the unlikely, you know, uh, uh, constellation of players that became the core four who that's when, the, that's when it changed. It changed when it, it, it felt like Memphis had done everything wrong. Really. They were, you know, the drafting the wrong players, they were drafting a sheep whatever. And all of a sudden you get Mike Connolly, who was the, booby prize really in was seen as in the Kevin Durant, Greg Oden draft, you get the discarded Zach Randolph uh, who was no longer wanted by the Clippers because they were drafting Blake Griffin that year. Um, you got, uh, you, you got Mark who was, you know, Powell's fat little brother at the point. That's what he was perceived as. Um, and, uh, and then Tony Allen. And I, when Tony Allen was signed, it was a blip on the radar. No one, it, 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 there was almost no attention given to the signing of Tony Allen that summer. Um, but those four, like they did it, like they changed everything. And, um, and Lionel Hollins obviously as the head coach and they epitomized Memphis in this, it much as Showtime, you know, sort of, sort of epitomized LA that team, and all of a sudden, all of that's the, then you started getting the believe Memphis towels and you started to get, that's really when it changed. And I think um, when it became as, as the, as the former president of business ops, Dan, Andy Dolich used to say part of the team's DNA, that's when it got into the town's DNA. And that's when, um, you know, I, I really think that's when they, it, it, Memphis and the Grizzlies became inseparable was those four. I, they are the founding fathers of this team and this franchise in a very real way. And I hope that with Ja and Jaron going forward, that the, the heights will be even higher that are realized, but those four are the ones who started it. I mean, you saw it. It was, it was, right. blast, you know? Yeah. And I, re I remember Zach Randolph at that point was reclamation project that people didn't want because of his perceived behavioral issues and Michael Heisley saying don't screw up or you're going to be on the next right. bus out of town Rick, Rick, and Riley, then, Rick Riley wrote a column where he talked about whether Zach Randolph had a thug chromosome you know like like yeah. that's how people would talk about Zach Randolph and the next thing you know there was Zach Randolph you know paying at people's MLG and W bills and paying um, and carrying the Grizzlies past San Antonio as a eight seed defeating a one seed. It was, it was just tremendous. I mean, just a blast. Well, and it was a, it was an interesting exercise in civics because I was with Zach in Portland. So I saw him right. as a rookie and, and as a young player did not fit in that town. Didn't really fit in New York. Didn't really fit in Los Angeles, but there was something about Memphis. There was a synergy between him and Memphis that they, they really meshed in a way that, you know, when Michael Heisley wanted him and, and signed him that I don't think anybody ever saw. I'm and that's part one of our conversation with Jeff Calkins as part of our series of 901 Knowledge. Part two will be coming up in a future edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. Jeff has been chronicling Memphis sports for the better part of 25 years. And during the pandemic, he has also shifted his attention to some human interest stories in and around the Memphis area. Extremely thoughtful, extremely engaging 
and, and a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed talking about the early days of the Grizzlies coming to Memphis and the fact that many of the citizenry weren't terribly much in favor of having a pro basketball team here. But there were civic leaders and people with, uh, with money and influence uh, who were able to get it done. And I think now, uh, 20 years down the road, very few people would say that, that they would oppose having an NBA team in Memphis. And it certainly has been a tremendous economic engine for the area. It has also been a tremendous philanthropic engine for the area as well. And so it's, 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 been, it's been great for the city. Although 20 plus years ago, not everybody thought that, uh, that it would be that way. So we really appreciate Jeff's comments and, uh, and also the conversation about the core four. I like the point that he made about Tony Allen and his signing not being uh, very heavily reported, which is indeed the fact. I remember the day that Tony Allen came to Memphis. He had signed, and the media availability was inside the Grizzlies' locker room. And if there were more than half a dozen people there, and that includes reporters, columnists, TV, radio types, and PR people, uh, that was about it. The signing of Tony Allen was not a a much-heralded event. There was certainly no press conference in the lobby of FedEx Forum. Uh, It was a very, very small gathering and a very low-key gathering. And and who knew that it would be this guy that had this very modest media gathering when he arrived in Memphis that would essentially coin and help define the grit-and-grind area, the grit-and-grind era. So uh, you just never know how things are going to play out. And uh, it's a very interesting look back from Jeff Calkins, and as I said, we'll have more with Jeff Calkins coming up in a future edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. This has been Episode 6 of the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.